Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in, who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, artistic director of the Hollywood Improv, Jamie Flam. Hello and welcome to Gatekeeper. My name is Jamie Flam. Uh, we got another great episode and we're going to launch right into it. I'm excited about it. I have this guest. She's amazing. Uh, her name is Randy Siegel and she's a producer, a talent manager, a consultant, a speaker, and she's worked with some of the greatest people in the comedy, in comedy's history. From Bernie Brillstein to uh, discovering Jimmy Fallon, she's got amazing stories and a lot of great advice to dispense to anyone that's listening, so you're going to love it. And uh, even more exciting, I got the very talented general manager of the Hollywood Improv, Rita Piazza, to give her an exciting intro. So to bring you into this episode, we're going to try something new. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Yes, close your eyes. Don't be self-conscious if you're on the subway or at a subway restaurant. or And if you're driving, well... <laughs> You might want to wait till you get home to do this part of it. But do me this big favor and close your eyes. You can hear the sounds of a stadium full of people. They're excited because the energy and anticipation is palpable. Are your eyes still closed? I hope so. The lights dim. As a pup. And she has got long, long legs for miles. And she's one of my bestest friends on the whole planet. Hey! That was better than I could have ever expected. Oh Stay on. Oh. Hi, Rita. Hi, James. Hi, Randy. Hi. Um, well, Rita, uh, you have a special relationship with Randy. Who I, I will be talking to shortly, but why don't you go ahead to tell a story or whatever you want to do to 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 okay. give us an intro to By this? By the way, episode. who are you talking about? That's not the Randy Siegel I know. Oh <laughs> God, uh, I believe it was nineteen ninety five, six. I was managing at the Improv. Yep, and this was when I was really cute. Can I say that? Like my butt looked like a hump on my He's back. Still cute. So anyway, everybody, feature, Rita Piazza. We is damn are cute. You're good. Our headliner was Bobby Collins. Our feature of the weekend was a young man that I'd never met before, and his name was Jimmy Fallon. This is Tempe. In Tempe, Tempe, Arizona, 1996. Um, And I had a phone call because he was flying in, and he didn't have uh, roads. He didn't have assistance. He didn't have club pickup in his contract at the time (laughs) because he was a pup. So I didn't have to worry about picking him up. But I had a phone call at the club um, from a young Jimmy Fallon at a Mobile or a Texaco station across the state, across the street. I'm not going to say he was crying, uh, but he was upset 
because he was lost and he couldn't find the club and he didn't have his luggage. All he had was his uh, guitar and I believe a troll doll. <laughs> so I had to go and borrow clothes from my boyfriend at the time. So Jimmy Fallon had some clothes before they got his luggage and I went and picked him up. And the first night he strummed his guitar and sang about a troll doll. And um, my boss looked at him and said, do you see that kid right there? He's going to be a star. And then I was in the green room with him because I opened that weekend. I forgot to say that. The opener didn't show and I was the opening act. Ladies and gentlemen. You personally? I, I opened the show. You didn't know she was a performer? I know she performed like improv. And no, the, the opener didn't make it from L.A. And my boss said, you need to open the show. So the lineup was me, Jimmy Fallon featured, and Bobby Collins was the headliner. <laughs> and... um. Jimmy and I were in the green room and then all of a sudden I heard this like these heels coming across the fucking floor <laughs> and this lady walked in. I was, I'm not ashamed to say I was 24. Mm-hmm. We're around the same age. Anyway, yeah. we were young and Randy came in and she not only is beautiful and smart and, but she was there repping Jimmy and, um, we just hit it off and she's fabulous and I consider her like a sister to me and um, a really, really dear friend. And I'm so excited for you guys to get to talking. Oh, you're so sweet. So I'll pass the mic, but I love her so much and you guys are, I mean, there's so much to learn from her. So Rita's the best. Is that the act that you did to open up for Jimmy Fallon that night? No, I wore a really short skirt where you could see my hoo-ha and I didn't <laughs> wear a bra and uh, Bobby Collins yelled at me and so did my boss. Please tell me there's tape of that. Oh somewhere. God. How much time did you do? Is there? James, I was opening. I was opening act for the whole weekend. I did probably 10, 12. You have jokes? I had great jokes. Like, well, I don't hilarious. get this. I don't have any context for you doing stand-up. Um, well, well, the best part about it is when they introed me, because you know I did sketch comedy that was in the episode that I did with Aaron. Mm-hmm. But I never, like straight stand-up, it's a very different animal. Mm-hmm. And um, the sound guy introduced me like this. Because I didn't have any fucking credits. He goes... You've seen her on HBO. And remember the the long aisle? Like you had to run down to the Tempe stage. And he's like, you've seen her on Comedy Central, whatever it was. You saw her at the door. You've seen her at the Oscars. Like he gave me this intro that was so fucking embarrassing and I had none of it, but he opened (laughs) the gate for me and I did. um, Did he say you saw her at the door when you came in? (laughs) Yeah, you, um, and I did jokes, I did, but they were not, it was when I was a baby and I didn't understand, and we could talk about that in another episode. All right, well, I'm fascinated. Yeah, we'll talk about another time. Rita's right. the best. Rita's one of my closest friends, and, so I, you and guys, I only have three. Oh my God, I have <laughs> such a great time. I know you're going to have so much fun talking to her, and you and I will gossip later. I know. Thank you for sitting <laughs> in for this. I <laughs> love you guys. That was so much fun. Ladies and gentlemen, Rita Piazza. And back to my hole in the office. <laughs> love you. Bye. All she's right. so great. She's great. We'll keep talking. Let's wait about till her she's, until gone she's gone, and then, gone now we'll and really then, talk. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> what a train wreck! Just kidding, <laughs> Rita. We love you. Hi, Randy. Hi, Jamie. That was unprecedented in Gatekeeper podcast history. That was really fun. It was. Fun. Now I have to live up to it. That's it's rough. It is rough. <laughs> it is true, though. It, I had Jimmy. Um, actually, he came to LA in January of 1996. And um, he hit kind of like wildfire and his first featured gig was at the Tempe Improv. That's so cool. How did mm-hmm. he get that? You. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's why you have a rep you sure, know, to get sure. you in the door. But his talent obviously kept him, you know, on stage. Um, but it was a blast. And he didn't know I was coming. I came out as a surprise. So Rita was really great with like keeping it quiet and 
you know, and I hadn't met her before. So it's, it's really nice to have that kind of history. Yeah. Look back at 1996. That's wait, 2006, 2016, 20. Yeah. 20, 20, 20 years ago. It's crazy. And so it's been a, a storied career for you in that time. Yeah. And so let's talk about it. Yeah. How did you get to that point where you're now repping Jimmy Fallon? What was your career and your life? Well, I was a stripper and no. we went over that. <laughs> no, we uh, no, I was not a stripper. I wasn't surprised when you jokingly told me that early because in the comedy world, you meet people all the time, then you never know. I've, I've met people that I would never expect were a stripper that were a stripper. Mm -hmm. I think maybe, maybe I could take it as a compliment, you know, that maybe you think I actually had the goods at some point in my life. <laughs> you do. You could strip now. <laughs> um, no, I started uh, for a brilliant, legendary talent manager named Bernie Brillstein. Yes. Who, at the time, the company was called the Brillstein Company. It's now called Brillstein Entertainment Partners. In the middle, it was called Brillstein Gray. Brad Gray was a partner and is now running Paramount. So the history goes way back. But I ended up as a receptionist at the company. Pretty was much that straight random out of school. Or did you like have a, a, a love for comedy at no. that point or just entertainment? No. No, I literally fell into it. It's one of those things where uh, you never know what's going to come your way. And, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely the complete crossroads of my life. I actually got out of college. I wanted to go to law school. And um, I took the LSAT and didn't do that well, but I was working as a legal assistant for a law firm and I had a whole set of life circumstances that kind of shifted for me. And I was with a temp agency that called and said that there was a job as a receptionist for an entertainment company. They can't tell you who it is. You know, it's like they send you out and you don't know. And um, it paid $25 more a week than what I was making. I was like, I'm in, send me, I'm in. So I went to interview and they hired me that day. And it turns out that it was for the Brillstein company mm -hmm. and they had I'm going to say 70% of the people on Saturday Night Live. Uh, Bernie had been representing Lauren Michaels from, you know, the beginning of time. Bernie was instrumental in creating the idea of representing the writers. Um, he, I mean, he's just a legend. So I had no idea, though, what I was getting myself into. And I was the receptionist. And, you know, people kind of think, oh, you know, that's a low level when you get out of college. And I had, I was like, I have a college degree. Why am I going to be a receptionist? But especially back then, Back in the day mm -hmm. when there were horse and buggies, um, we didn't have direct dial phones. Everything came through one main number. So every single person came through me. Mm -hmm. So I got to talk to everybody that called the office and got to know a lot of people that way. And everyone that came in, I would get to meet. So I literally was kind of learning about the comedy business. And then, you know, I was tired of being a receptionist after like, I don't know, a minute and a half. Sure. And then and I was like, wait a minute, I have a college degree. But I got promoted about nine months later and was on a desk for um, a manager named Jerry Harrington, who had people like Nicolas Cage and Christopher Lambert and actor actors. Mm -hmm. While everybody else had the comedy people, he had the actor actors. And I would sit on, you know, I was trying to learn. And the desk next to me was a girl named Jana who actually worked for a manager named Ray Rio. And Ray handled specifically like, Adam Sandler, David Spade, Rob Schneider, Ellen Cleghorn, Fred Wolf, Tim Meadows, like you name it. And I would always hear her talking and I was like, she's having so much more fun than I am. <laughs> so when she actually left and they were going to replace her, I said, please just have me jump over, you know, no offense to my boss, but that's how it really happened. So when I went to work for Ray, it was literally a timing issue, but also, you know, and I always talk about this. I do a lot of lecturing for colleges and, and a lot of speaking. When an opportunity comes to you, it's really about what you do with it. 
you can either help perpetuate it into something or you can completely miss the boat and just let it sit there. And I really saw it as a big opportunity. And the timing of it was great because Sandler, Spade, and Schneider especially were just becoming pretty big featured players on the show. They had Mm -hmm. been writers. So as they were growing, I was starting to learn the comedy business more. And I completely credit the three of them with teaching me so much about the business because they allowed me to have some responsibility. And especially uh, with Sandler, I became the script supervisor on three of his albums and I started handling a, a lot of his college dates. But it was really you know, the ups and downs of learning that business. And then I would come here to the improv all the time. So I was always trying to go out to the clubs. If my boss was going, I'm like, I want to go. And he was so sick of me. You know, he's like, why do you have to go everywhere? Like I have to, but the days of coming here were great because everyone was hanging out and it was like the height of comedy and you'd see everybody. And back then too, you also had all the big managers and agents hanging out, you know, like Jimmy Miller and Rick Messina And, you know, all these people that were here constantly. Mm -hmm. So I was just wide eyed and trying to learn and just loved being around it, but also realized it's a really difficult business for females. And I'm not going to be like all, oh, chick power, you know, but it's a reality Mm -hmm. that it is difficult. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, because comics are not the most couth people sometimes (laughs) and put some alcohol in them. And it's like, I'm sorry, what did you say to me? (laughs) Um, but it was a really big learning experience. But the, 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 one of the most fun stories I have with Bud Friedman and he and I have talked about this. So, uh, I used to come here all the time and I would just learn and I would be really intimidated by Bud. I mean, it was Bud Friedman, yeah. you know, and if, if you got to meet him, it was like, you just shook the hand of a God and he could never remember my name like ever. And I'd be like, yeah, it's Randy. We've met before. All right, move over, move out. You know, and <laughs> it was, it was pretty funny. But when I, years later, when I had this kid named Jimmy Fallon and, and I was a manager on my own and, and Jimmy performed here and hit like crazy. And Bud remembered my name and I go, you know, you've never remembered my name before. He goes, I never had to before. That's <laughs> it's, like, it's a great story, but um, that's how it all got started. I literally fell into it, but the comedy business is tough yeah. and you really have to have a thick skin and learn that personalities are going to be tough. Um, people are going to be mean. And the first time I was called a bitch, I was really upset because I was 22 or 23 years old. And, um, I was handling Adam Sandler's colleges and he had a system. He would fly in the day of, he would do his thing and he would leave. And that's how it works. So this one promoter was trying to push him to come in the day before to do an in-studio radio interview. And I said, he, he doesn't come in the day before and he starts yelling at me and I was like, Oh my God, this guy's yelling at me. And I'm an assistant, right? Mm-hmm. Still learning. So I'm not quite sure what my boundaries are, but, um, I said, well, I'm sorry, but this is, you know, this is the way it does it. And, and I knew enough to say there's nothing in the contract that says he has to come in the day before. Mm-hmm. So the guy hangs up with me. I'm not kidding. Like four minutes later, uh, Adam's agent calls me and it was Lou Viola at APA and says, so what did you say to this guy? I'm like, why, what happened? And I started getting there. He goes, well, he calls me up and he goes, who's this fucking bitch that won't let Adam Whoa. come in? And I go, wait, what? And he, and I said, I didn't do anything. This is what I said. And he's like, wait, just chill. He goes, you've been called a bitch. He goes, take that with pride. And I was like, really? He says, yeah. Because if you were a dude, you'd just be some tough asshole that mm-hmm. isn't letting it happen. He goes, 
don't let it bother you. You did exactly the right thing. So I was all excited. Was it like, the first and last time or? Definitely not the last. Thanks for bringing that up. Well, and I've been called much worse, so it's okay. Do you feel like <laughs> I talk about this all the time, but like, especially quote unquote gatekeepers yeah. can get, you know, bad rap for, for, um, you know, being assholes in the yes. industry. And, um, but there are so many nice people, but how often do you have to put on the, you know, I mean, business hat all the time. Yeah. It's always business. But the thing is what I think that some people forget is that this is just a business. Okay. And while it is a big business and while yes, careers happen and they can be created and they can be destroyed, but we are not curing cancer and we are not, you know, inventing the wheel, mm -hmm. right? It is business, but People matter mm -hmm. and relationships matter. And there's an old saying with every executive position that's out there that people don't call you, they call the chair. And that is the truth. No matter what your title is, you could be a VP of whatever, you could be a director of whatever. You may not be there tomorrow, mm -hmm. but someone still has to make a call to that position to get the job done. So you forget sometimes that being nice to people is highly important, mm -hmm. but there's no reason not to be is the thing um, on the representation side. And they are the ultimate gatekeepers of talent. Try getting to a piece of talent without going through their rep. It just doesn't happen. So for people who are trying to get to talent and they have to call the agent or call the manager, there's a way to do it. And the thing that people miss out on is all you have to do is be nice to the assistant. That's that's the true gatekeeper is the assistant. Mm -hmm. And Nine times out of 10, that person who's sitting on that desk, whether it's a rep or an executive, you know, wherever, has career aspirations to probably move up. Yeah. I don't think many of them are, you know, well, I'm here a for the next- assistant. <laughs> there are some career executives, mm -hmm. executive assistants, and that's great. But for the most part, you're not going to find that. So really, the first thing that you should do is talk to this person like they're a human being, not like they're just some low level nothing. And I had that happen. I had it happen with um, a pretty big agent and I'm going to leave his name out of it, even mm -hmm. though I probably could tell it, but I'm going to leave his name out of it. Hands down, every single time he would call the office at Brillstein when I was receptionist, he would never converse with me. And I knew his name. I knew his voice. I would say, oh, and if I had to take a message because the assistant wasn't there, he would just be, just tell him to call me back. I'd be like, okay, would never converse. Then I get promoted. The desk that I'm on, has, I think, probably four or five clients with this guy. So it's constant calls, okay? As I'm learning, you know, my boss was giving me more. So I'd say, okay, if he calls, give him this piece of information so that he knows where we're at with this deal. I'd be like, great, okay. So I get the phone call. Oh yeah, sorry, Ray's not available, but he wanted me to tell you this. And I would get an answer like this. Okay, I don't want to hear it from you. Get him on the phone. That, that's how I was spoken right. to, okay? And it never changed. By the way, in five years that I spent at Brillstein, that never changed with this particular agent. And if I was sitting at the desk and he'd come in and walk by, he would literally just walk by me. Mm -hmm. Fine. So the best part is um, when I left Brillstein, I went to another company and that's how I ended up signing Jimmy was through someone at that company. But that marriage was very short lived. I ended up on my own after like seven months. But two years later, Jimmy got set around at live. And I was on my own, but then I joined what was then called talent entertainment group, which is now called 
Management 360, mm-hmm. which was a merger between two companies. But I joined that company. Jimmy was on SNL. I'm going to say it was the fourth episode in. Ben Stiller was the host. And he did uh, songs on Weekend Update for Halloween. And he did an impression of Adam Sandler on Celebrity Jeopardy. That's the show that catapulted him into just a whole other level. So I was there for that show. And it was literally like magic happening. Mm -hmm. Everybody at the after party was coming to talk to me and agents just coming up. And it was like, okay, well, he has an agent, you know, who happens to be standing in the corner. Mm -hmm. So nice of you. That's really nice. But the point is the day I got back from LA, I mean, to LA, right after that show, I had no joke. I'm going to say 13 phone calls from different agents wanting to try to steal him from his other agent. One of the calls was from this particular Mm -hmm. agent. Okay. And, um, he had no idea that I was the girl that sat on the desk at Ray Rio's office. He had no clue. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I did a circle of a round of meetings with people, but the point is when I did call him back and I could tell that he had no idea it was me. I decided I was going to mess with him a little. And I would go, yeah, hey, yeah, thing. Because he's saying, oh, Jimmy's such a star and good for you. And all this. I go, yeah, he is. Thank you so much. Yeah. I guess all those years with Ray really paid off, right? That's and then it's nice. like, there's just this silence. I go, yeah, it's just really exciting after working with Adam and, you know, Rob and those guys to have my own guy, you know. And it's kind of like a slot machine hitting 777. He goes, right. Yeah, right. Absolutely. You know, I just knew that all that, you know, would work out for you. And I'm thinking, oh, this is genius. So of course now he wants to take me to lunch and all of these things. I was like, yeah, sure. You know, and I pulled the old, have your assistant call mine and we'll set it up. So, and then you murdered him. No, the best part is (laughs) I went to have the lunch and one of my bosses happened to be good friends with him. And I told him the story and I said, here's the deal. I'm never going to let him know how I feel about it. And I'm not going to bring it up, but I'm also not going to be rushing to help him. And that's my strategy. Mm-hmm. So my boss goes with, and this particular agent was no dummy. He brought another agent with him that I did have a good relationship with. So we get to lunch and no sooner do we sit down, my boss goes and says, So I understand that Randy hates you. Oh my God. And now I'm like, are you kidding me? Are are you fucking kidding me? My own people just threw me under the bus. And I had, this was my, you know, relationship to handle. So I'm kind of known for being a little bit of a loose cannon. (laughs) And um, I really have issues sometimes with being backed into a corner. Um, So I decided, you know, This was totally unfair, but I look at him and I go, um, yeah, that's about right. And the just table comes to a, just a halt. And he says, well, do you want to tell me why? And I go, um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, I worked at Brillstein for five years and you couldn't even look at me, no less remember my name or have a conversation. And now that I have the hottest kid on TV, Mm -hmm. you're taking me to lunch and wanting to have conversations with me. I go, so might be your style, but not how I like to do business. That's all. It's really just about that. So it's totally silent. And then the other agent goes, 
Well, you know, Randy, if it makes you feel any better, that's how he is with everybody. <laughs> Did it make you feel better? And it didn't matter to me at this yeah. point. Like, no. I, again, it does come down to, you have to have a thick skin. And it was a critical moment because I was still very young at this point, but it was a critical moment in learning about relationships in the, in the business. Mm -hmm. And my mentor, Bernie Brillstein had a lot of respect for this person who is a very successful agent. Very. So at some point you do have to step back and say, look, it's not me. And I, I kind of knew it wasn't me. That's just how he operated. But there is that part of you that says, well, why can't he change for me? Mm -hmm. But he did when it was appropriate for him, right. when he needed it to be, which was fine. And that's where people's mindset gets carried away. It's like, I'm not going to turn it into a war. What for? Mm -hmm. Because the bottom line to it is you can't not respect somebody for what they've done. At least if you can separate it and say, this person might be a dick or this person might be whatever, but at least look at what they've done. Mm -hmm. But if they don't have that to fall back on, they're a dick and an asshole and a fucking failure loser. <laughs> then you go, well, you know, there's just not necessary for any of so it. So you can be one. Yeah. Maybe two. One kind of cancels out the other. But, um, but I still love that story because it, it, it um, at the end of the day, people are, are paying attention and it's true. I deal with, uh, you know, young agents and managers and talent every day. And, um, and I remember when I was, you know, my first year working here at the club and the people that, you know, oh, he's just the guy that's like, you know, part-time running the lab. Right. Who had no idea that, you know, a year later I'd be booking the main room. Right. And I remember the ones that were dicks then. Yep. So being cool as fuck is one of the themes of the show. And I think what you're saying is, yeah, you know, first and foremost, be cool. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But if you're not going to be cool, at least have the talent. <laughs> Exactly. It's like, at least have something to back it up. Yeah. But again, it does make it difficult for me because it's intimidating. And, you know, I'm a little bit more assertive just because it's just my nature. But there was a moment where I could have gone the other way with it. I mean, my boss didn't expect me to, to admit it mm -hmm. when he said, I hear Randy hates you. I think he thought that I was just going to turn into a giggly girl. Oh my God. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. What do you mean? I think he's great. <laughs> That was not going to be my mm -hmm. response, but I don't think he expected what I did. Just so, it. and that's the thing too, is you can't fault somebody for being honest. It may not be what you want to hear mm -hmm. and you might be upset by it, but honesty, which is a rarity in this business, being honest and being direct, it will get you further, I think. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. And in negotiations and in deal-making, Sometimes the best thing that you can do is say, look, this is our situation. This is the position that we want. Let's just cut to the chase and let's just get this deal done. You know, as opposed to the 10 days of, well, you tell me what you want. Now you tell me what you want. Oh my God, what do you want? And that's what it becomes. I mean, there, but sometimes that is warranted. I mean, there's strategies to negotiation, mm -hmm. but ultimately we're all in the same boat. We all just want good things to happen. Mm -hmm. If I have a project and you have the talent, I want your client because I want my project to be good and you want your client to be in a good project. So ultimately we're all on the same side. People take this idea of like, Oh, you're automatically my enemy and you're automatically someone that I have to squash down in order for me to feel better elevated. And that's fine for some people. But I think that when that's encountered, it's, you can't control how someone's going to behave, but you can control how you react mm -hmm. to how that person behaves and humor is such an amazing tool. 
It's an absolute amazing tool. It can diffuse a lot of situations. It can put someone at ease. It can completely avoid a problem. I actually just had it happen where I had a situation with an agent because I'm, I was booking a show and uh, I had a commitment for talent to do something. And then they realized that we were taping it. And so she says, Oh my, well, he can't do this because you're taping it. I had now already confirmed him that whole thing. So I said, I said, you got to call me. So she calls and instead of being posturing or rude, she was kind of laughing and she goes, Oh my God. I'm so, Cause I had, I had written it in the email that previously that said it's being taped. Mm-hmm. And I wrote it back and I said, I said it in my previous email and now you've confirmed it. So she calls and she's kind of laughing. And I, and I took the approach of, and I didn't really know her that way. I just go, what are you doing to me? Yeah. I go, you're, you're busting my balls here. And it was just kind of like an understanding. Well, I mean, why, why get mad? Why turn it into a problem when it's, there's sometimes easy solutions, but people just think that they have to one up somebody and be rude. And I'll tell you this, I've never experienced in the business more rude, uh, entitled people that I call for certain people's offices and the assistants are just unbelievably short and mean. Like they're mean. And I was like, why are you being mean to me? Like sometimes I really want to say, what did I do to you? And it makes it very difficult. And the gate, you want to talk about gatekeeping, casting director offices are the worst. And by worst, I don't mean, I don't necessarily mean that. I mean, they're the most challenging, Mm. which by the way, that's their job. Okay. Because talk about getting submissions for projects. I mean, they, that is their job. But when somebody calls and knows the casting director for 20 years and says, Oh, I've known so-and-so for a long time. I wanted to suggest this client. Um, yeah, I'm not going to pass that message along. I was literally told I'm not going to pass that message along. And I said, okay, I'm not quite sure why you wouldn't pass along a message. I mean, I've, I've known your boss for 20 going on 25 years. Well, our breakdown says that there's no phone calls allowed for this submission. I said, okay, so how about this? Can you just tell your boss that I'm calling and would love to get a call back? I just want to kind of chew the shit. And it was like, yeah, no, I'm not going to pass it on because you obviously want to talk about submitting. And it was like, who the fuck are you? Who the fuck are you? So I get that there's a process, but sometimes being a good gatekeeper means knowing when to make that judgment call. Mm -hmm. And it's instinct and it's, I don't know. Is it a learned thing? Maybe. But I think sometimes it just has to be, you know, people are just dicks sometimes. <laughs> well, another, I mean, you remind me like, you know, when I first started booking the improv, you know, I had my kind of a smaller view of what, where comedy was at, where, what, what I liked and, and the people I knew. And especially at the improv for the last five years, you know, this place is an institution, you know, and there's so many people that you know, have been part of the fabric of this place and comedy and names, even, you know, your, your former boss and people that have called that my first instinct was like, I don't know who that person is. And sometimes, you know, if they're 30, 40 years older, you're like, it's easy to like, just discount that for some reason. And yeah. I feel bad even saying that, but I've learned that, you know, you know, this industry has been going on for a long time and, um, that you should respect and understand that there's going to be people that have been doing this much longer. And it's not all about the you know, 25 people, you know, um, in whatever industry or world you're in, but it, it extends beyond that and just, you know, give the benefit of the doubt to everyone. Part of uh, Rita working with Rita, like she'll, someone will call him like, I don't know who that is. And she'll be like, 
you know who that person is? You know, 15 years ago, they were running HBO and right. whatever it is. Um, so just another lesson, you know, for people to remember in the industry. Yeah. And not knowing who someone is, by the way, is not an excuse for being rude either. No. And by the way, it's the flip side. That person who's not known, because somebody who's newer doesn't know who they are, doesn't mean that they can turn into, like, how do you not know who I am? Totally. That's not fair either. You know, I come to this club all the time. And, you know, you guys have had different door people over the years and what have you. And if I see somebody new, you know, when I go to walk in, of course they're stopping me. Are you on the list? Would mm -hmm. you know? And I will introduce myself and ask their name and say, yeah, I don't think I've been on a list here since 1995. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you know, this is who I am and I'm here a lot and they're usually great with it. I can't sit there and go, oh, how do you not know me? That's insane. And anyone who says, uh, well, don't you know who I am? The answer is no. Yeah. Okay. That's just the ultimate. If you have to say, do you know who I am? The answer is no. Right. <laughs> it's like, that's just, I, I know that there's a lot of egos around and it, it does happen. I've heard it live. I've been with people who say it and I just want to kind of cringe, but again, it's, but it works both ways. People have to understand that, you know, generations change and no one who's an assistant now at UTA was an assistant back in the day. Mm -hmm. They're just not. And if they are, then they're a career assistant right. and that's the difference. But yeah, that whole, uh, you should know me thing. Yeah. No, no, no one should know unless it's ops, an obvious celebrity. Like, oh, really? You didn't recognize Bradley Cooper? Mm -hmm. Are you under a rock? You know, that's different. <laughs> so you're a Bradley Cooper fan. Definitely. Apparently, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to go back for a minute because you were talking about Bernie Brillstein. Yes. Who, for me, reading that his autobiography about four yes. years ago was a very transformative moment for me in really understanding the industry, but also his take and his positivity. Um, and a lot of what you were saying was reminiscent of that. How much as a mentor to you, um, has that inspired how you work and how you operate? And is there anything else you can share about your relationship or yeah. um, any moments or particularly amazing advice that you can impart? Yes. I got very lucky getting into a company with quality people uh, who were not only smart about the business, but were good people. Um, Bernie was like a father to me. And when I started as the receptionist, I didn't know who he was. I mean, it was a learned thing to realize, you know, his history. And I kind of gravitated towards him out of everybody because a, he was the head of the company and B there was just, it was hard not to, um, how I got to, how he became such an influence on my life. And to answer your first question, Everything I do to this day, and he passed away, I think six years ago now, but everything I do to this day, I think about what would he say? What would he do? And I listen to his advice and I, I get choked up mm -hmm. still because um, he was my mentor for 18 years. So what's, what's interesting about the journey with him is there's a few lessons that I can impart about it. And it comes down to work ethic. Um, when I was receptionist, I would go in, my hours were nine to six. And I would get there, Bernie would already be there. So I asked his assistant, what time is he here? She said, he's usually here at eight o'clock. And he had a tradition. He would read the trades. This is when they were delivered. You know, mm -hmm. now it's all online, but there was actual paper <laughs> delivered and he would drink coffee and, and, and uh, water. So I was like, okay, well, the guy's name on the door is here at eight. I'm going to be here at 
So I started getting in before him. And the first time he walked in and I was there, he was, I, I got nervous. I was giving him a freaking heart attack, <laughs> but I said, yeah, your coffee's ready. Water's on your desk. Trades are on your desk. And he was like, huh? So after a little bit, I, I didn't know anything about the entertainment business, mind you. I was reading the trades and reading about pilot deals and backdoor deals and stand-up shows. And I was like, I, I, this is like reading, I may as well be reading Greek. So I got up the nerve one morning, you know, there was no one in the office because no one came in really that early. And I went to his door and it was kind of intimidating because his office was big corner office. And he, he was a big man with white beard. He kind of looked like Santa Claus, big boisterous voice. And I said, do you mind if I ask you a couple of questions? He was like, sure, come on in. So that started what was a couple times a week. I would get to sit down with him. He would fill me in on some information. I got to learn about him. What I later found out in life was that the reason he, what I say is put up with me for a lot of years was because back then that reminded him of him, of himself. Mm -hmm. And he tells in his book, the story about what being at William Morris in the mailroom and that the big boss was in early. So he would come in early. So he saw this work ethic in me, but I had a very severe set of life circumstances change when I was working at the company um, in like the first six months. And I had a whole shift of things. And I sat down with him because he knew something was up. And I said, look, my life wasn't supposed to turn out this way. And he looked at me and he said, but it did. So what are you going to do about it? And those were the most poignant words that had been said mm. to me. And that that to, to this day, I go, okay, well, this is the situation. What are you going to do about it? That is the key thing. So that was the first critical piece of advice that he gave me over the years. Of course, it was many, many things. I mean, being able to listen in on a call between him and Lauren Michaels mm -hmm. and uh, Don Olmeyer at the network about the cast for Saturday Night Live and who's getting hired, who's getting fired, deal-making. I mean, to listen in on those calls was absolutely amazing. An amazing education. Sandy Warnick, who's still at the company, one of the best negotiators I've ever seen in the business. Um, Bernie had a way to negotiate and I would try to mimic it sometimes, which kind of failed a couple of times. But, um, but over the years, his advice, his guidance, when I left the company, um, he was very supportive and he was always there for me. I never made a move without talking to him first. I wanted his advice. And um, I think that when I had been in management for about 10 years and I was really burned out, I mean, I had a lot of success quickly. Um, Jimmy happening, I was only, I think, 29 years old when he got SNL. And by the time I was like 32, I was just really burned out. And I sat down with him and I said, you know, what do you do when you just feel like you're done? Mm -hmm. And he said, listen, kid, you know, I can't do it without talking like him. <laughs> listen, kid, you work too damn hard. You need to get out from behind that desk. Take a walk around the streets. Who knows? Maybe you'll see a sign in a dress store that says help wanted. And you'll say, fuck it. I'm going to sell dresses for a living. <laughs> and my first reaction was, yeah, how's the view from that pile of money you're sitting on, right. Bernie? Because I'm not quite as high. But the poignancy of what he was saying was a massive impact to me. But um, I really didn't make any decisions without consulting him. When I went to work for Fred Silverman, he was a, re a referral for me with Fred. And Fred was the legend who ran uh, he was the programming executive for all three major networks back in the day. The only person who had done that at the time, half the history of television is under Fred Silverman's regime. Bernie was a referral for me to him. 
which, you know, I could die now. I, my name was in the trades with Bernie Brillstein and Fred Silverman mm-hmm. in the same article. I was like, I'm done. Yeah. Keep your Emmys. I have this to frame. Um, but a lot of the advice and stories that are in that book, you're talking about, which for anyone who's listening, it's called, you're no one in Hollywood unless someone wants you dead. Where did I go right? And David Renson, who's a phenomenal author, uh, wrote that with Bernie. And then there's a second book of Bernie's, which is called uh, It's All Lies and That's the Truth. And it's like a small pocket version of advice and and chapters, stuff like, you know, knowing how to smell the room when you walk in and, uh, uh, you know, only doctors and hookers need pagers. You know, I mean, it's phenomenal advice, but he is hands down one of my biggest influences. And I always wanted to be like him. And I did say to him when I was on my own, kind of trying to figure it out. And I, I, I had eight clients that I was on and Jimmy was one of them and he was not on SNL yet. He was just, you know, starting out. And I said to Bernie, I said, I don't know that I want to do this. I'm doing it on my own. And he said, do you have one client? And I go, I have eight. And he goes, but do you have one? And I believed in all my clients and they all had potential. And one of them was on a sitcom and there was massive potential for all of them. But I said, yeah, I think this kid, Jimmy Fallon is the real deal, like the real deal. And Jimmy had only one focus. He only wanted Saturday Night Live, which I had never experienced before. Like nothing that came up unless he said, okay, is this going to affect me getting Saturday Night Live? Like if, if it does, then you don't do it. And that's what it came down to with him. And I said to Bernie, I said, yeah, Jimmy. And he said, then you got to stick to it. He goes, stick with it, kid. And, you know, obviously the rest is history, but his approach to things, he was always nice to the staff. He, um, he just had a way. And most people in, in the industry miss him and miss that way that he had. Um, and it is funny because I did, you know, look, you have mentors, you admire people. And um, he asked me, he said, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be you. <laughs> That's why I want to be you. And he said, you can't be me. He said, I am me. You can be influenced by me, but you have to figure out who the best you can be. And that's how you have to start living your life for your career. And again, another really poignant thing to say. And, you know, just really funny with the thing I told you about negotiating. Mm -hmm. He, um, I used to hear him all the time negotiate. So when I was on my own, I had a deal come in for a client and, um, I was like, oh, I'm going to play hardball like Bernie does. And I got this call. And Bernie used to just, oh, you know what? Call me back when you're serious. And he would hang up, right? So I get this call and I was like, and I thought, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to pull the Bernie, right? <laughs> and I go, and mind you, I'm like 20 something, you know, working out of my apartment. And I go, yeah, well, you know what? Maybe you should just call me back when you're serious. And, you know, I think I was a little bit more polite than a hang up, but hung up. And every, hands down, every time I saw Bernie do it, like clockwork, 60 seconds later, phone rings, they're ready to talk. Okay. My phone wasn't fucking ringing. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm in minute two. And I start sweating. So I call Bernie, right? And I tell this, I'm like, I really need to talk to him. I go, Bernie, I, I did the thing and they're not calling back. He goes, they're not going to fucking call back. I go, I don't understand. He goes, you can't say that to them. I can say that to them. Who the fuck are you to tell them that? Because you've been doing this, what, a minute and a half? (laughs) So he's reading me the riot act for trying to be him. And I said, but I just thought that he goes, listen, kid, you got to fix it. 
I go, Bernie, they're not calling back. What am I supposed to go? So you got to call them and you got to fix it. He goes, what are you going to do? Call your client and tell your client that you fucked up a deal. And I go, I, I guess I'm going to have to. He goes, no, you're going to fix it. That is your job. So to your gatekeeper thing, someone calls to make an offer to the gatekeeper for the talent. Mm -hmm. And I pull this shit. Okay. So again, this comes back to what we were talking about. Just being honest. I had to suck it up. And I called the person back and I said, okay, listen, I was trying to be burning. I worked for burning. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And I said, I've probably jumped in the gun with this approach. Uh, Clearly it doesn't work. So can we start again? And the person was so appreciative that I just called it like it was. And they said, okay, well, you know that I'm just going to say the same thing and there will be no negotiating. And I go, okay, you got to give me some leeway. Let's just start again. So we did start again and we ended up making the deal and it worked out just fine, but it was a critical lesson, you know? And again, in life, you know, you can, you can admire people and you can try to be like them, but you have to be you. Mm -hmm. And there are sometimes you'll see in people what not to do. You know, if you're working for somebody who's this jag off, you know, and who doesn't let people in, there's nothing wrong with saying, I don't think that's the right way to go. And I don't want to be that person. There's nothing wrong with setting your own frame of how to be and how to treat people, because that's ultimately what's going to be, gets you further. If there's two similar situations and two similar talent to call, I'm calling the person whose rep I like better. It's just that simple. And that's a lot to be said, by the way, because talent doesn't understand sometimes that their reps are damaging their relationships and they may never find that out unless it's going to be the hard way. Of all in your resume is just so incredible. Uh, Is there one position or job you've had where you felt the most you along the way? Or is that just something that constantly evolves? Um, I think all of them I have felt the most me because I just kind of made a decision who I was going to be a long time ago. Um, I mean, I'm not saying that there hasn't been times where it's like, what the fuck crawled up Randy's ass? You know, (laughs) like it, it happens. I mean, we're all human, but for the most part, and this is one thing that I discuss heavily with my college students. You don't necessarily have to know that early on in life, what you want to be, but you should be looking at who you want to be. And with Facebook and, you know, Instagram and social media these days, everything is being looked at and there's decisions being made about you before you even talk to somebody. Um, I've had people that I've never spoken to before that call me because they want to talk about a project or something. And immediately they're reciting my entire background. And it's like, Oh, okay. So somebody, you know, looked me up Mm -hmm. and did some research. But the thing is when you're looking people up, what are they finding? And I try very hard not to have stuff out there that is negative. Um, I have pretty much rules. I never uh, take pictures with a drink in my hand. I don't let friends tag me in photos, especially if it's at a social event. I'm very low profile on social media. My Facebook circle is extraordinarily small. um, And it's only people that I know. There's not a single one of my Facebook friends that I do not know personally or have done work with in the past. And it's a very small number. I only have like 174 Facebook friends. Um, I'm, you know, pretty much a stickler about not using foul language online and I think that in all of that, it's one of those things where 
I decided early on this was what I wanted to do. I fell into comedy, but it's my life. Like, I can't imagine living without comedy. Can you? At this point, no. Right? No, it's, it's the backbone of my career, my life, and my friends, and yeah, everything. I mean, when you walk into the club and you get that smell and that feel, it's like the air feels a certain way. It smells a certain way. You just feel a certain something when you walk in. Like to me, that's, that's home. Walking you still into the club. enjoy watching comedy? Love it. Absolutely you love it. You still laugh? I try to laugh <laughs> as much as possible. <laughs> um, yeah, there's those industry people that are like, make me laugh, you know? And there's the classic, you know, head nod. Yeah, that's funny. Then that's an industry, an industry person's way of laughing is going, that's funny. Mm -hmm. Like that's the old joke. But I, I, I love when people try. I mean, look, let's be real. Watching bad comedy is not funny. It's not easy to like, and when I say bad comedy, I give credit to anybody that gets up on stage. Sure. God bless you. If you want to get up there and take a risk that people are just going to stare at you, more power to you, you know? And let's be real. There is one of the, I mean, comedy is the most subjective form of entertainment. What I find hilarious, you may be like, I don't fucking get that guy. But it still does have appeal for every person that they may want to, you know, go out and laugh and have a great time or just sit and watch people. And maybe they're not funny, but at least you're entertained in some way. If you have an open mind, a lot of industry people who've been doing it for a long time end up not having an open mind. And I think that that's part of the, the challenge for talent is when you are on stage, if you're doing a showcase, you feel like you're under such a critical microscope. And that if you just, you know, if you don't kill, then it's, oh, you know, they're not going to like me. But what you have to understand is that the person who's sitting there watching, they're going to respond to you one way or the other, no matter what the audience does. And I think that talent has this thing of where they do a showcase and they don't understand why they killed, but somebody else didn't, but that person got called in for a role. And it's like, I wish there was a bigger understanding that it's not about you're set sometimes. It's what the people are there, the scouting people or the casting people are there to look for. And you may just not have fit the bill. Mm -hmm. They may have thought, oh my gosh, this person's super, super funny and clearly they killed. But that other dude has the look that we want and can probably pull off what we want better. So that's what, that's the thing is, and it's hard to have that mindset. For me as a viewer of comedy, um, and I'm never really not scouting. I'm always looking, but I'm not because I'm not looking to sign anybody. And I insist I'm not signing anybody else. I have three clients. That's all I want right now. And I really wouldn't necessarily sign someone as a management person, but because I'm in the business, I feel like it's, I should know who's, you know, up and coming, who's great or what have you. But, um, you know, I'm currently the talent producer for this, um, campaign that moveon.org is doing, you know, they're the political action yeah. committee. And it's called Laughter Trumps Hate. And we just had a nationwide comedy competition looking for new political voices. And people had to submit tape. Uh, we had three categories, stand-up sketch and Donald Trump impressions. <laughs> and um, wow, some of the tapes, yeah, I looked at it and was like, there's just, 
this is not a judgment call. This is just not funny. Right. <laughs> I mean, there is sometimes not funny, but there are some that I just give so much credit to. And like one dude clearly just probably would not do well on a comedy stage, but has, has never probably performed, did it from his closet. And he chironed it with coming to you from, you know, the comedy closet. And I was like, oh, that's a nice effort. Yeah. And I, I try to find, the thing about talent is you have to find something if you can and figure out then how to turn that into something. That's what right. development's about. But everybody has something specific that they're looking for. You know, if a scout is looking to book the Tonight Show or, you know, kind of, or a talk show, there's specific things that they look for. If you're looking to book at midnight, there's specific things you look for. So as far as funny goes, always funny's number one, just funny. And people need to just be themselves sometimes instead of trying to be other people. And that's the same thing on the executive side or on the side of life. You know, you need to find who you are. And in comedy, you can tell which comics know exactly who they are, know exactly what they're about and just have something to say. And that will always win out over somebody who is trying to be or find their footing. And if it's late in someone's career and they're still trying to do that, it could be a little bit disappointing. It's like, yeah, maybe you should be a little further along by now. Yeah. But early on, you know, it's nice to see somebody try to find their voice. What about, I mean, for Jimmy or any mm -hmm. of your earlier clients, did he feel like he found his voice quicker than most? No. 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 At what point is he still funny? <laughs> he got Saturday Night Live quicker than most. Yeah. So he didn't have to work on his stand-up set in the same way. Right. So the time frame, and what's really funny about this is he tells the timeline in a completely different way. And I've, I'll call him on and be like, what are you doing? Why are you messing up this story? <laughs> so what's great about it is he came to LA in January of 96. He got SNL in July of 98. So it was two and a half years, um, which is extraordinary. Okay. He had very little material. He was 21 and he had, you know, most people know now, and it's been all over the internet. He had an act where he had a troll doll and he did impressions. Yeah. Read him. Yeah. So he had a doll, a troll doll, and his act would be about doing impressions around the doll. So the setup was, he did this British voice, like, oh, we're having auditions for a spokesperson for the new troll doll. And they'd be like, first up, you know, Jerry Seinfeld. And be like, he's got no pants, you know? So I, of course I can't do it justice. Where did you see him for the first time? On tape. Okay. Yeah. When I was leaving Brillstein and going to this other company, uh, there was a guy named Peter Islin who worked at the company who, and this is, this is the whole trail back. Pete had a small paper in a town in upstate New York where Jimmy's from. Jimmy was an intern at the paper. Pete was shutting down the paper to come to LA because he wanted to end up being a music manager. So Jimmy says, here's my tape. If you can ever do anything for me, you know, here it is. So the tape was a set that he had done. I think he was like 19 and he did a bananas in Poughkeepsie. So I'm coming over to join the company. Pete says, well, I know this kid from a And since I had just been working with Sandler and Spade and everybody on SNL, he goes, his dream is Saturday Night Live. So here's the tape of this kid. So I look at the tape clearly green, mm -hmm. clearly nervous of, you know, but obviously talented. So I was still at Brillstein at the time, even though I was going to be leaving the company. Bernie let me stay for three months after I gave notice. During that three months, they were casting the Dana Carvey show. 
which we're going back to 95 now. Okay. And the company that I was going to be going to was trying to get Jimmy an audition in New York. And for me, that was easy because Brillstein represented Dana Carvey and Robert Smigel. So it was right there. So I made a call and Jimmy was going to go audition and he was going to leave college, you know, get, go to the audition in the city. And I figured, you know, I should probably talk to this kid before and I'm going to be working with him anyway. So I stayed late one night and I got him on the phone and I said, Hey, is this Jimmy Fallon? He goes, this is Jimmy Fallon. And I go, this is Randy Siegel. And I, he goes, Oh my God, I know who you are. I'm like, Oh, that's great. And literally that conversation was, I'm going to say two and a half, three hours where he, it was just so adorable because I hadn't realized, which is kind of weird that I didn't realize how little experience he had. I just don't know why it didn't click with me, but I said, okay, have you ever done an audition before? He goes, never. I was like, do you have anything prepared? He's like, I don't know what to prepare. I was like, oh, okay. So we went through all of his characters and what have you. So he went to this audition, which for industry people who listen to your podcast, he went in and the casting assistants at the time were Kelly Lee, who's now the head of casting for ABC and has been for well over a decade, maybe going on to, and Jeremy Gold, who is a head of uh, programming at, uh, I think it's at Endemol. And they started out as casting assistants and they're the ones who put him on tape. Mm -hmm. So they put him on tape and word traveled about this kid that was just so great. But Smigel, there's a legendary story about how Smigel didn't want him on the show and he didn't get the show, obviously. However, that kind of kicked open the door. So when he came, to, when he moved to LA in January that, uh, you know, just a few months later and I left the company and started working with him, um, that's when it kind of all started. But of course I, you know, said to Ross Mark, who was booking this club, um, who now is over at Sirius mm -hmm. Radio. Uh, but I said to Ross, I've got a new kid coming in. Let's get him up. And sure enough, you know, he started going up here and um, people started recognizing this young talent. But the critical thing, and this is what's so exciting is, you know, he had a lot happen very quickly. And what was difficult was that there's a lot of comics that had been pounding away at the pavement, you know, for years and didn't get nearly the opportunities that he got within weeks of being in town. So it created a little bit of a situation for him. And he was also, you know, he had a guitar in his act because he would close out with musical impressions, you know, of bands that were doing a new theme song for the troll doll. <laughs> um, and then he had maybe like, three minutes of material in between, but, um, no one wanted to follow him. And then it was like, ah, oh, this kid, but ultimately the, the thing that changed everything for him or that kicked it off was, I'm going to say we were in February. He was only here for a month and he had a Wednesday night spot at the improv. And it was the first spot after a casting director showcase so you know how showcases are. Everybody just stands up and makes a massive exit, you know, when it's done. So David Gee was the host and David says, all right, I'm going to do some time in between so that, you know, he's not freaked out by the entire room leaving. And I was like, do me a favor, get him up as quick as you can. Because I knew he opened with his impressions. And if I'm somebody who's leaving and I hear voices, I'm turning around. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. 
people started putting their asses back in their seats and watched his whole set. The next day, no joke, eight different production companies and casting offices wanted to sit down with him. So he had been here for literally less than a month. And we did an entire round of meetings. People were literally throwing development deals at him. Development deals. That's crazy. And from major networks. So here's this kid who gets off of a plane from upstate New York and suddenly he's sitting at the WB, at NBC, at ABC with eight people around a table talking about how we're going to give you a television series. And he's like, what is going on? Like, this is great. I'm like, this is not how it happens. This takes Even time. Even then, that's not how it happened. No. Because nowadays, it seems like that doesn't happen overnight anymore. No, no. I mean, back then, too, was the days of a lot of talent deals were being mm -hmm. given out. You know, holding deals and development deals were pretty, you know, popular and also very large. I mean, largest deal I made back then was for a client. It was half a million dollar deal. And that's huge. But I also made one for quarter of a million dollars for an unknown. Mm -hmm. They don't nearly make those deals anymore. You don't see any more. I'm just picturing the improv today where they'd be rolling a show and that one set that would keep people captivated and get, get you a deal. Does that kind of thing happen? Here's, here's why it doesn't happen nearly as often because people aren't going out to the clubs like you used to. You're not really finding the executives going out night after night just to sit at the back of the room and see people. And that's the internet, I presume? Yes. It's so much easier to get a link. And, you know, people's lives are different and busy. But, I mean, I get that. And I get that it's a very efficient way to do stuff. Um, but I think that there's something to be said, you know, for feeling it you know, and living it and watching it happen in front of you. There's definitely something to that. Mm -hmm. I find it exciting. You know, it's like, again, though, time is, you know, hard to get. Mm -hmm. And the people that are the trigger people now have families, you know, so they'd rather be at home with their kids, which what is that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> Who the hell wants to be at home with their kids? Um, I know, that's why I don't have any. Cause I can do whatever I want. Um, but their lives are different. And then the new generation, which I don't know, doesn't seem to think that they have to really, I don't, you know what? I think what it is, is because of the changing times, because media has changed, they are used to working online. So the idea of going out is not as prominent as just part of what the business is. Mm -hmm. um, but if you can get somebody to come out, you know, you have to make it great. Um, and this is a quick aside yeah. or maybe it won't be, but have you seen what they're doing to the improv bar like right now as we speak? I am dying to see it. Rita has told me all about what it's going to look like. And I saw all the construction and I'm familiar with the project. So I'm dying to see it. Full circle for you. Yeah. So to our listeners, uh, they are transforming our club to the improv circa 1994 mm -hmm. for a, a prominent comedian, um, who, was a performer here at the time that you work with. I think that's vague enough per uh, legal uh, reasons, but uh, how surreal to see exactly what it was like, even, you know, four years ago, Yeah. how much this club has changed, yeah. but to see it go back to 20 years ago. I think it's really cool because there's a nostalgia that comes with the black and white tiled floor and the bar. And, you know, when you see something from your past, if it's at least, decent memories. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
like, well, let me tell you what happened in that corner over there. <laughs> um, I think it's really cool. Well, even last night, they have a wooden bar again. Yeah. And a lot of changes that are, you know, have been controversial or, you know, when you evolve, you know, you, you, you want to change. But because of the history of the improv, um, and even in my short time here, um, you know, having that wooden bar back, it just made it feel so much warmer. And yeah. it reminded me of a bygone era of just that. Not that we don't have packed nights, but it was just it was something really magical about it. Yeah. Well, you are connecting with it. People who are new have no connection to it. But there is that whole idea that there's tradition. And, you know, it's funny because the move on, we just did showcases in um, Chicago and in New York. And our showcase here was the week before. So part of our show, we have video presentation and we also are are, are shooting, you know, we're taping. So um, you guys are top notch with tech and Mitch, your sound guy, fucking awesome dude. Like everything was like, all I needed to do is give him the flash drive and it's all good to go. Okay. (laughs) Zany's in Chicago, which is a fantastic club, by the way. And one of the reasons I like it is because it's like stepping into the past. Mm -hmm. The walls are the same. It smells the same. It feels the same. And I said, okay, we need it. You know, we have projection. We and they go, well, we have a screen, but how you're going to get it on there is a little tricky. <laughs> it's like, wait, what do you mean? Don't you just have a tech thing? And it, yeah. no. So we had <laughs> sort of like, you know, those old school projectors. Mm-hmm. It's an actual projector where you unscrew that stem underneath to get it to tilt up higher or not. And you needed a VGA plug to go from your laptop to the projector. It's like, thank God I have a PC with a VGA. And we had to put, and then kind of jerry-rigged the sound. And I had to go get like an 18 foot audio cord Mm -hmm. in order to plug it from my computer all the way across the floor into the DI box. It was just, it was one of those things where, you know, you have to just roll with it, obviously, but it's exactly what you're talking about. It was a rickety, you know, old school system that I was... First, I was like, oh, this is, this is going to be rough, but look, you have to adjust to your surroundings. But that I, I was actually loving the idea that this is how we had to pull it off because nothing had changed. Right. And, and it's a great room, but if you go room to room, city to city, yeah, comedy clubs are upgrading everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the rooms are bigger and more glamorous. And I don't know if people really care that much who are going. Or if it's, you know, just what clubs feel they have to do. But I mean, it's sure it's nice to walk into a nice club. I mean, this club is gorgeous. You know, the remodels that have happened, they're nice. But yes, there is that nostalgia factor that, oh, I remember that. Of course. Um, Well, let's uh, wrap up. This has been an amazing conversation. And I could listen to you talk all day. I would love Uh, to have you back on the show. I'd be happy to. Uh, But a major theme this show, at least for me, is the idea of connection and that, you know, at its core comedy is, is giving back and, you know, looking at your resume and this move on.org thing, um, and, uh, comic relief and all these things like just maybe just talk a little bit more about, um, what's coming up with the move on and just your philosophy and, and how you have utilized your career, uh, to give back what that means to you. Yeah. Um, I was really excited about this project that I was, introduced to. And I'm really excited that they brought me on because this election year is so unbelievable. Everything that's happening. I can't believe it's happening. 
and I'm not going to get into like politics and stuff like that unless you really want to. But uh, <laughs> well, you're for Trump being our president. Of course I, I am. Okay, good, good. Of course. Come on. Who else would I want? Um, but to me, my platform is comedy. That is my platform. But to get involved with a project where they really want to support the side against Trump is fine by me. Okay. But the fact that they're trying to take this tension filled, like hot button year of election and show that there can be a lighthearted comedy side to it. I think it's fantastic. Everybody needs to laugh. And, you know, I was really surprised at how many people have been upset about this project. They've criticized move on. I got blasted on Twitter for being involved with it. Hmm. You know, like you should be ashamed of yourself and like, why I'm helping to find comedy voices. Why is that something that's wrong? This happens to slant against a certain candidate and the, the, the campaign is laughter Trump's hate. And the slogan is being united against hate and it's everything encompassing. It's anti-bullying, anti-hate, anti-bigotry. So if you're against the project, so in other words, you're for yeah. bullying, you're for bigotry, you're for people to be anti-gay, I don't understand, you know? So it, it's a little bit more broad than just don't, you know, elect Donald Trump, but um, people only want to hear what they want to hear. But the project has been great. I love doing stuff like this. Um, working with Comic Relief was fantastic. Uh, I knew Bob Zamuda for a long time, you know, the founder of Comic Relief. And I was very fortunate to be brought on to the 06 show. Um, I think that charity is an important thing. I have mine that I, you know, personally am involved with. Um, but comedy is something that everybody can get into. I mean, Craig Shoemaker, you know, he's got laughter heels and there is something to that. There's medical proof of it. Um, and I think that if people kind of just step back a little bit and found humor sometimes in situations, uh, life could be a lot different for yeah, some people. Sure. Um, but I can't do without comedy. And, you know, I don't represent people that are um, extremely one way or the other. I mean, I got three people, you know, Jackie Flynn, who, you know, mm -hmm. who is just phenomenal. Um, Brent Pella, you know, who's an up and comer and is phenomenal. I mean, hopefully he'll be on SNL. Um, and then my digital client, his channel, you suck at cooking was someone that I happened to come across and was like, I just can't get rid of the idea how funny this guy is. So that's what drove me with that too. So it's just all about funny. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, I think to really get to of where, where it goes, you know, I just love comedy and the comedy. I don't, I really can't see myself doing anything else. I've thought about it. I thought I should just give it all up and what would go you move. I, I would, um, marry a really rich guy. No, 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 no. I wouldn't do that a either. Poor man. I don't want to do that either. <laughs> um, no, it, it's, it, it's a good question. I've been asked, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this? And I, I honestly don't know what I would be doing. I think that maybe I would, um, I would probably be a lawyer. You know, that's my only other thing that I really like, cause I love contracts. Mm -hmm. Like that's a whole Your show that we do about contracts for talent. Mm -hmm. Um, because people get, they don't have representation and they get handed these deals that really can screw things up. And, um, but yeah, I'm kind of weird like that. Like when I get a contract, I get excited. I'm like, Oh, I get to redline <laughs> things. So I'm a little odd like that. Um, but I teach for Boston university. 
you know, they have a program where students come to LA mm -hmm. and I teach talent representation and contracts and, you know, great group of students. I teach in the spring. That's a great way too to see what's happening out there, what generations are coming up. And it's, it's phenomenal what I learn about the up and coming generation. And you know, what's funny is I've been doing it for nine years and only about a year and a half ago or two years ago, did it start to really occur to me that, oh, wait, I get it. They're all the same age, but I'm getting older mm -hmm. because when I started, I was nine years younger than I am now. So I've, I was so much more closer to them in age and there was a different relatability. And now, and I couldn't figure out why, why do they seem so young? And I was like, oh, right. They're all freshmen and seniors. So they're always going to be 20 and 21 year olds, but I keep aging. Like what the hell? That's sad. That was really a horrible revelation for myself. And then I went and drank some Jack Daniels and cried. Is it your <laughs> medicine of choice? What? Jack Daniels. Jack Daniels is um, a very good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's, he's never one to judge me. He is never one to hurt my feelings. He's just very supportive. God bless him. Um, <laughs> Well, you heard it here. It's so much great stuff, uh, but nothing better than uh, to drink your pain away. Um, I think that's the greatest. Uh, we can't leave on me sounding like an alcoholic. Uh, no, no, Come no. I, I realized that. Was um, no, there's so much great stuff, and I, honestly, I mean, there's so much more I want to ask you about. But um, I think we should uh, meet again soon. Well, I hope that anything was helpful, insightful, anything maybe. For sure. No, it's just in, in, inspiring to hear about um, your career, and I think so many people like it's another reminder that you never know, especially in entertainment and comedy, like where your career will take you. And that's, it can be scary, but it's, it can be exciting. And, um, no, I think, uh, the world of comedy owes a debt of gratitude to you. You've, you've, uh, you've brought in so much and continue to do so. Hopefully. And I wish the best for you. Well, thank you, sir. Uh, clients. And, uh, will you come back soon? I would love to. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you. I, as I wrap up every show um, with my mantra, which is to work on your craft endlessly, be a professional, be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always. This has been Gatekeeper. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Jamie. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com and at jamieflam on Twitter. A very special thanks to the Sideshow Network, the Hollywood Improv, Andrew Steven, Sean Merrick, Roddy Swearingen, and producer Buddy Peace for the awesome music at the top and end of this episode. And be sure to check out hollywood.improv.com for updates on great new shows coming up in the main room and the lab. I don't understand why I don't get an introduction. We had an introduction for the introducer. I'm Gregory. I'm a person too. Why would someone introduce me? Funny, Gregory. Um, I'll go out there and introduce you. Are you happy? Are you happy? Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, to announce the answer to the show, uh, give it up for Gregory.